0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit EpiphanyLigoneer.org. you know what i learned recently and this is really interesting to me maybe not you but it was interesting to me i learned that rascal flats was not the first band to record the song bless the broken road i know right I only knew it as the country anthem by Rascal Flatts, but it turns out, you know, I'm not a country music guy, but this track had lots of appeal and everybody was listening to it back in like, what, 2012? It turns out the original version of this song was recorded by the uh, southern country rock group, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and they recorded it back in 1994, like way after everyone kind of recognized them from, you know, like the 60s and 70s. Um, There was also a cover of Broken Road by uh, Melody Crittenden, the Christian country music singer, uh, back in, like, 98, and that was featured in the season finale of Dawson's Creek. So I'm trying really hard today between Dawson's Creek and the nitty-gritty dirt band and Rascal Flatts to reach out. Have you connected yet, somebody? Anybody? (laughs) But if you know the song Broken Road, it's a song about um, understanding past troubles in light of present realities, and the singer of the song expresses his gratitude, or her gratitude, uh, expresses gratitude that, you know, despite a myriad of failed romances along the broken road of his past, it was all worth it because all of those things uh, led to the true love that this person is now experiencing. And here's the lyrics to, to let you know what the song's about I set out on a narrow way many years ago, hoping I would find true love along the broken road. But I got lost a time or two and wiped my brow and kept pushing through. I couldn't see how every sign pointed straight to you. That every long lost dream led me to where you are. Others who broke my heart, they were like northern stars pointing me on my way into your loving arms. And this much I know is true. God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. And the song has, of course, ever since been added to the annals of all sorts of romantic first dances at weddings. And, you know, the singer is able to look back at all the terrible and horrible things from uh, his or her romantic past and come to a really remarkable conclusion, that every failed romance along this broken road was not only a necessary step closer to finding true love, but also, in some mystical and spiritual way, God himself was orchestrating this journey through the pain until romantic bliss was gifted. And, you know, that's the song, and I, frankly, I wish I had that kind of clarity about my troubles and my past, because sometimes I'm able to see the providential work at God at play at my life, and there are some things in my life where I can say, God blessed that broken road and things have worked out Okay. Um, but it's also true that in other areas of my life, I still feel as if I'm walking the broken road that I'm searching by faith for whatever God is trying to teach me or tell me. And I still haven't found a solution. I'm like the singer in the song in the sense that I I still haven't figured out the why that all the signs are pointing to something, but I don't know what it is. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Maybe you have a romance from your past that still gives you a hang up, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 years later. Maybe there's an argument that you have with your parents that still feels unresolved and you're not quite sure if you want to approach that conversation again because you're worried about the rift it could bring into the relationship. Or maybe you had this, you know, a massive career shakeup and you're still trying to figure out, you know, what was God doing when you were in job limbo and you were tied on money for an extended season? And I imagine that if us listening to this podcast today were given the opportunity to ask God a question, 99% of us would ask a question that would begin with the word, why? You know, why the miscarriage? Why the falling out? Why the job loss? Why the rejection? Oh, you know, insert your own situation there. And for the singer of Broken Road, you know, why the song is so beloved is it, it gives us the impression that this why is fairly simple that they've had this divine insight. God was secretly steering the singer on to this predestined, God-ordained romantic joy. It just took uh, some rough road to get there. And in our reading today from Genesis, Joseph is going to claim something similar to what our country music song suggests. Because in our reading today, Joseph is going to suggest that God had blessed the broken road that led you, my brothers, here to Egypt. Now, I spend some time today examining Joseph's thoughts on God and God's uh, interactions over the past 20 years of his life, his sovereignty over the lives of his people, God's actions in the world for our good, God's relationship to our past suffering. All that is on display today in our reading from Joseph. And the takeaway here is, I think, that if we can trust God with our past— then we might be able to find an end to whatever broken road we are currently walking on and moving on in our lives. Um, that we might actually, uh, by inviting God into that and asking God questions and trying to see what God is up to, um, by, by imagining and, and thinking about him orchestrating the steps that have gone on in our past, we might be able to find some deliverance from the broken roads that we currently walk on. And so let's see how Joseph understands God's providence at work, And the reconciliation he's now having with his brothers. Because we've been with Joseph now for weeks on end. And through most of that time, Joseph has been traveling the broken road. Um, The the whole story starts 20 years ago, uh, before the events of our text today, 20 years in the past. Joseph's brothers, filled with jealousy and hatred for their talented and beloved younger brother, they sold him to slave traders. They faked his death to their father and they pocketed the money for selling him into slavery for themselves. And Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt where after a stretch of like 13 years of real tumultuous stuff, including jail time and false accusations and and everything in between, um, Joseph was eventually promoted to be the grand vizier type, a second in command figure of Egypt. He only answers to Pharaoh. And his job at the time was to prepare Egypt for a massive worldwide seven-year-long famine. And so when that famine hits, you know, Egypt is prepared for the famine, but Joseph's brothers back home up north in the land of Canaan, they were not. So they had to travel to Egypt uh, to get enough food for their family, and they encounter Joseph. They don't know it. Joseph does. But, but they encounter Joseph, and when they, Joseph encounters his brothers, what he discovers is they're not the same selves that they were 20 years ago. Arrogant, hot-headed, uh, and the like. Um, these new brothers, the same brothers with a new attitude, coming to Egypt searching for grain. They're humble and they're repentant, and they're racked with guilt for the sin that they committed against their brother twenty years ago. That um, they are contrite, as we talked about last week. And so Joseph reveals himself to his contrite and repentant and humble brothers. And this is what he says to them when he announces himself, because he says, I'm Joseph, and his brothers freak out, and they're terrified. And he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land for these two years, and there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. All right, so there's some important language in this passage to work through, the three quick notes. First, Joseph said that God uh, sent me before you to preserve life. That's in the reading, preserve life. This language of preserve life, it sounds very similar to God's work through Noah as he took the animals onto the ark two by two to keep them alive, to preserve their life. And that's back in Genesis six. And so Joseph here is comparing himself to a Noah of sorts. And, and the famine is like the flood and his brothers who have arrived there are passengers on another delivering vehicle of God, just like Noah's Ark. Um, and so Joseph says, God sent me before you to build the Ark for you. And the second thing in our reading to take note of is that Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And this is an oblique reference to God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 15. So this is the second callback to something that happened earlier in Genesis where um, God promises that the offspring of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and they would be a blessing to the nations. And it's very hard to be a blessing to the nations if 11 out of 12 brothers die during a famine. And so Joseph is saying that God has orchestrated these events to keep his promise to their great-grandfather Abraham. And if you've been with us since the beginning of the series, you'll remember this from you know last May or, or June. We talked about this in Genesis chapter 15, this promise that continues to play an active role throughout the rest of Genesis. And the third note, you know, is is not just that, you know, Joseph is this new sort of Noah figure or that he's fulfilling uh he's the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham, but um, Joseph says that God has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler all over the land of Egypt. Now Egypt at the time was the great empire, right? For your timeline's purposes, we know that the famous pyramids of Giza, these ancient wonders of the world that everyone goes to see, um, these would have already been erected before Joseph's time as the Grand Vizier. So we're talking about, Pyramid-building, empire-building, massive, huge Egypt here. And and in many ways, Egypt is this great archetype for the ancient empire. Massive armies, bustling civilization, huge building projects. And so it begs the question, how else could the 11th son of an ancient nomad in the backwaters of Canaan become the most practically powerful person in the ancient world to rescue his brothers who share the same divine promise um, except for... By the providence of God, I mean, how else could you uh, orchestrate the series of events in such a way that the one brother who shares the promise with his other eleven brothers, but his eleven brothers kick him out, that one brother is now perfectly positioned to provide safety and security and food uh, during a an international crisis, and so Joseph says, "Look, clearly God's fingers are all over this." So then, brothers, what you need to do is relax. Take a deep breath. You know, hakuna matata here. No worries. Uh, Joseph says, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Because after all of this, Joseph have determined that these 11 angry, backstabbing brothers aren't actually the ones responsible for Joseph ending up in Egypt. Who is responsible for the events that we've been going through these past 10 weeks? Who is responsible, according to Joseph, Uh, for um, the situation that we've been reading about now. That would be God himself. Joseph says that God is the one responsible for all this, and he says so in our reading. He says this, It was not you who sent me here, but God. And to follow up with that later on in Genesis, Joseph will say to his brothers in chapter 50, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so Joseph looks at all these terrible life events that we've been reading about, Joseph looks back at his own broken road and says, in essence, you know, I underwent some of the worst pain that a person can undergo. Rejection by my family, captivity and slavery, preyed upon by a foreign, a foreign noblewoman, accused of uh, marital indiscretion, thrown in jail falsely, uh, forgotten and abandoned there for years. And yet with the benefit of hindsight, I, Joseph, can now see how all that trouble and all that suffering was meant for good. Um, God's handiwork is at work right here in the middle of our midst. So, dear brothers of mine, in showing your repentance and in showing your contrition, you have nothing to worry about. The culpability of today's events lies in the hands of a sovereign God. Joseph tells his brothers not to worry, because God is responsible for all this, and it's all worked out for the best. Now, let me switch gears for a moment and talk about... uh, I want to talk about the film The Passion of the Christ that came out in 2004 almost 20 years ago now, but I don't want to talk about the film specifically. I want to talk about one of the non-issues that got played up about the film. And maybe you remember this. I remember this pretty clearly. Because uh, for a season there, there was this big conversation about not the culpability of Jesus' crucifixion. Who are we going to blame for uh, the, the death of Jesus Christ? And it's a similar question, right? Joseph said, you know, brothers, you're not responsible for everything that's ended up here. But, you know, in 2004, everyone was talking about, well, who is responsible, who's culpable for the, for the um, crucifixion of Jesus? And it was a particularly, again, this was something that bopped up for a week on the internets and on the uh, n- the news cycle, and then it went away. But what ended up happening was everyone was, was wringing their hands about a, a verse in the film that came from Matthew 27 about the culpability of Jesus' death. And you may remember in Matthew 27, the governor of the region, a man named Pontius Pilate, is trying to reason with an angry mob about whether Jesus should be crucified. And he theatrically pulls out a, bottle of wa- a bowl of water in front of this angry mob, and he washes his hands, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd responds back, His blood be on us and our children. Which is really a chilling statement to make when you think about it, especially when it's Jesus Christ we're talking about here. And throughout the Middle Ages, this verse has been used as an excuse to persecute and do violence to the Jewish community. I mean, that that happened in the past. And people at the time believed that the Jews killed Jesus, and they used this verse to to justify their anti-Semitism. And so when the Passion of the Christ came out, many people were upset because they thought, well, if you're going to include this verse from Matthew 27 in the film, you're going to stoke the fires of anti-Semitic thought because you're going to get people saying that the Jews killed Jesus. And so, uh, what ended up happening was everyone said, Well, you know, the Jews killed Jesus, that's anti Semitic. But then the talking heads got on TV and said, No, actually, the scholars say it was the Romans who killed Jesus, not the Jews. And that's technically true because, you know, Jews didn't crucify people, Romans did. But then a bunch of very earnest and meaningful Christians uh, started posting signs on their churches saying, You know, who killed Jesus? We did, because Jesus, of course, died for their sins. And so, Uh, Perhaps we Christians have some culpability on the death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday because of what we've done. But if we look back through Joseph's story, through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also if we look at the death and resurrection of Jesus through the lens of Joseph's story, if we let these two stories kind of hang out together and look at each other, we come to a different conclusion. Because if we're seeking culpability for the death of Jesus Christ and his torture and his crucifixion and his burial... I mean, we might consider, we might follow this trail of crumbs and come to the conclusion that the the person responsible for all this is God himself. Meaning at the end of the day, if you want to know who was responsible for Jesus' death and resurrection, the answer is God himself. The whole plan, come to find out, is that Jesus' death and resurrection was the plan from the very beginning. One that God orchestrated and helped along from the start. That the broken road... That Jesus walked through to go through all of this was the plan from the beginning. God wasn't turning lemons into lemonade. God wasn't making the best out of a bad situation. God wasn't leaning in to make a strategic pivot when circumstances changed. You know, God knew from the start that if human beings were going to be saved from their innate selfishness and the schemes of Satan and the machinations of a broken world, it would happen because Jesus Christ suffered, died, and rose again. That's what would do it. And even now in Jerusalem, you can walk the broken road of Jesus. We just call it the Via Dolorosa or the the way of suffering. And it's this path now that you can walk in Jerusalem from the place where Jesus was tried uh, to the place where Jesus was crucified, where he had to literally drag his cross with the help of, of course, Simon the Cyrene. But that path still exists. And so for Jesus, this was a very literal broken road, a Via Dolorosa that God himself was behind the scenes working and orchestrating. And the result of course was an unparalleled cosmic blessing, which was the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of sinners and of uh, the resurrection that would come from it. God was the one who orchestrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. God was the one who orchestrated this death and resurrection of Joseph. And Joseph's response to all this is a word of absolution to his brothers. Dear brothers, calm down. I'm not going to harm you. I'm not going to get revenge. I don't want to play tit for tat. God was in this from the beginning. And so Joseph says, let's get our father and bring him and everyone else down to Egypt while the massive famine continues its grip on the world. And then Joseph pulls out a copy of the album acoustic by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and plays track number 12, God Bless the Broken Road that led me straight to you. And that's not true, but you know, it makes sense in the context of the sermon today. And and so this, on the one hand, is one of Christianity's most beautiful truths. There is no suffering that God isn't cognizant of. Suffering isn't a sign of the absence of God. It's actually a sign probably of his presence. And on the one hand, those of us um, who've been and had this kind of Uh, reconciliation uh, with our past and see God's blessing, well, it's just a great comfort that's unparalleled that no one else offers. But on the other hand, for some of us that that are still walking the broken road, who have yet to find some sort of consolation from our past, who have yet to determine what our hurts mean, um, well, this is a truly scary thought that Joseph gives to us, isn't it? What about the great tragedy of my past? What about the great burden that I carry? What about the horrific things done to me in the past? Or what about the horrific things I have done in my past? How could God possibly take my past and turn everything on its head? He might have done it for Joseph and he might have done it for Jesus. But what about me? Um, I I certainly don't experience that. I don't feel that. I don't see that happening right now. So what about me? And for those of you who are walking that broken road still, I thought I would share in conclusion a few thoughts from uh, Rachel Denhollander. I don't know if that name rings a bell for you. Maybe you remember a few years back about Rachel Den Hollander's um, uh, viral video on YouTube uh, at, the sentencing, at the sentencing of, of Larry Nassar. Um, she was one of the lead uh, sort of witnesses. Uh, she paved the way for some other female gymnasts uh, to um, bring to light a whole system of serial child abuse that Larry Nasser, the team physician for USA Gymnastics, had done over the course of his decades of work. Um, Nasser, of course, now he's serving life in prison. He was accused of sexually assaulting 265 young women and girls throughout the course. I mean, just terrible, terrible, the epitome of evil. And, um, you know, the person that kind of broke this open for the world was Rachel Denholander. Um, she was the first person to step forward and publicly bring to light two decades of Nasser's crimes. And um, part of her victim impact statement, which she read at the sentencing hearing from Larry Nasser, she outlined the very broken road she walked over the past 18 years of her abuse. Everything from um, sort of self loathing, hatred to herself, anger, resentment, uh, difficulty connecting romantically, difficulty connecting with anybody at all. Um, but toward the end of her statement, uh, she did something remarkable, um, which is she tried to connect with, with Larry Nasser as a Christian, and she pointed him to the forgiveness of God. And she said this, I pray that you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. I mean, can you imagine offering someone who has been accused and convicted in life in prison of of, of sexually assaulting little girls uh, under the guise of being a teen doctor and offering them forgiveness because of of Christ's forgiveness of us? Um, of course, it got the Christian world very interested. And so Christianity Today did an interview with her in their magazine not long after. And Rachel D- Hollander uh, was... Asked about navigating the abuse and and leading the charge against Nasser while maintaining her Christian faith, and she explained that she found solace in the Bible mainly because her church wasn't very helpful. Churches, God help us all. We need to be better at um working with this particular area of, of sexual abuse and assault. But um Den Hollander shared uh, her experience with a particular verse, and I'm going to read it to you now. Um, she says this one was from John six, where Jesus asked Peter. Uh, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, where else would I go, Lord? You have the words of life. And there was a point in my faith where I simply clung to the fact that although I did not understand or have the answers, I knew that God was good and that he was love. And whatever else I didn't understand couldn't be a a contradiction to that. Um, So what she said was that she knew that God was good and that he was love. And whatever else... She didn't understand, couldn't be a contradiction to that, right? Um, The promise of God, my dear friends, in this goodness and love is that the consolation is coming. Uh, Your broken road will one day come to an end. And nobody else is saying anything like that in the world right now. The only other option available to us who still walk broken roads is basically sort of a benevolent nihilism where we say everything is terrible and the least we can do is be nice to one another. But the promise of God... Um, is that there is an end to the broken road. Uh, The New Testament in the book of Hebrews says that um, ultimately, Jesus did the cross, undergoing the shame, walked his broken road. He did it for the joy that was set before him. That there was this happy ending on the other side of the broken road that made the torture and the humiliation and the shame and the crucifixion worth voluntarily undertaking. And so whatever happy ending looks like for Jesus right? Um, It's offered to us in our broken roads too. There is the promise of a resurrection from the dead and that all um, things will be made right again. And I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what your past looks like. But what Rachel Denholander and Joseph and Jesus and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and the book of Hebrews and the Passion of the Christ, what they all speak to is this great consolation that God offers us. Because We, like Den Holander, don't have all the answers. But what we do have is we have, um, for us, promised and waiting, a happy ending, just like Joseph. And we also have a happy ending just like Jesus. And what God offers us is something that the rest of the the world cannot. It is the possibility of a happy ending where all things will eventually make sense and all things will turn out okay. Um, That's what he gives. That's what God gives uh, Joseph today in our reading an end to the broken road. And maybe with the joys of eternity and the revelation of God's handiwork, maybe one day we too can say that the sovereign God has blessed our broken road as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.